Never overpromise and underdeliver is one of the most important maxims of sales. Yet according to University of Bath sociologist Pete Manning, this is precisely what happened with the extraordinary chambers of the courts of Cambodia. The ECCC, as it is also known, was responsible for identifying and prosecuting the perpetrators of the 1.5 to 2 million lives lost during the Cambodian genocide. Anchored in Western understandings about traumatic memory applied wholesale to nations, Pete Manning argues that the ECCC made far-reaching claims about how transitional justice would help Cambodia heal and move towards a healthier future. These claims masked the very real international and domestic political constraints that limited the work of the court. They also failed to recognize how Cambodians might remember and make use of the past in ways that had little to do with Western assumptions. It was when Pete Manning first traveled to Cambodia over 20 years ago that he was struck by the gap between Western preconceptions and the reality of how Cambodians remembered the genocide. Part of my curiosity started because of this this sort of disconnect, um, as, we're, as we're sort of describing it, or this discordance, I suppose. On the one hand, between you know the the, the representation, the depiction of Cambodia as this basically sort of you know kind of like a backwater space, right? A sort of broken, dysfunctional, sort of amnesiac, politically corrupt space. All these sort of you know quite problematic, freighted assumptions about you know Cambodians. Khmer people's sort of inability to to remember this violent history, um, or sort of a, a, you know the assumptions about a sort of culture of denial, um, and actually you know people don't don't think and feel about the past like that, or they didn't think and feel about the past like that um, even back then. Um, you know, it was it was striking because because you know I'd have friends that would say things you know quite quite um these these were conversations let's say that just weren't weren't perhaps visible to to the western eye in the way that um in the way you would you would sort of expect them to be you know so mum saying things to their kids like if you don't eat up all your rice then the pole pots will come and get you so so you know memory was being reproduced right these these this violent history was being remembered um and at least it was it was being remembered in ways that were perhaps more complicated or more elusive than um then perhaps that sort of prevailing human rights discourse on the one hand and human rights scholarship on the one hand was able to grasp. And I suppose on the other, you know, the way the way the guidebooks wanted to, you know, um, depict Cambodia as a sort of tourist destination that was that was a bit wild west. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that was that was my entry point, I suppose. Pete Manning has spent years studying the relationship between memory, transitional justice and the genocide in Cambodia. This is the basis of his book. Transitional Justice and Memory in Cambodia, Beyond the Extraordinary Chambers. Pete Manning, welcome to Realms of Memory. Thank you for having me on, Rick. One of the lenses that you try to look through to, to understand uh, memory and justice in Cambodia is uh, you use Foucault and you use uh, his ideas about discourse. And uh, I mean, is it fair to say that if there's a a language and a way of of, of, of thinking, at least from the outside, about how the people in Cambodia experienced that past or how they remember it, that, that, that those are just discourses, that that's a language that comes from someplace else. Uh, it comes from other entities or other institutions that have their own you know, agendas. Yeah, I think, I mean, if I, if I can sort of unpack it a little bit, I suppose, um, you know, because Foucault's guilty of a, you know, lots of sort of Eurocentric assumptions and, and, um, and problems. I don't want to get sort of too distracted by that. And, um, you know, if I could just 
point out, I suppose, or just, you know, make a, a gentle observation. I think it's useful to think about memory via Foucault be- because in these contexts in particular around sort of responses to violent pasts um, in particular, because, you know, his his work is fundamentally concerned with a relationship between power and knowledge, right? That's the sort of typical or the classic um, relation that sort of people orientate or you know, gravitate towards when they're reading Foucault. And, um, you know, it, that, that, that critique, you know, this work in across Foucault's writing and thinking, you know, really helps us sort of problematize the idea that to remember is a neutral process, right? That memory is sort of innocent or that memory is to remember is, has got a sort of um, like an automatic relation to sort of social and political betterment in the present you know you remember to make things better you know um and and what what Foucault's work exactly as you say you know picking up on the idea that memory might be discursive there might be discourses that lay claim over memory um seek to act on and and intervene on memory and in doing so they sort of enable certain people to sort of um make those interventions in particular ways you know there's a politics to all of this right there's a power set of power relations at work in in all of this so, you know, for me, I mean, I, I read Foucault, I suppose, in two sort of maybe slightly clumsy ways. I mean, the first is thinking about the sort of content of memory um, as, as discursive. And in that, I just mean the sort of the stories of what is and is not remembered. Um, you know, we'll have ellipses, we'll have gaps, we'll have omissions, you know, there will be erasures. Um, and there's a sort of discursive ordering and architecture to that, um, to that that sort of sense of storytelling, I suppose. And then, you know, in the second way, Foucault is very relevant. Um, and this is, you know, very obviously sort of linked to, you know, his his work that explicitly addresses questions of memory, I suppose. Um, and psychoanalysis, you know, his interest in histories of mental health and psychiatric intervention. You know, m- memory is an object of, of work. You know, memory is something that certain people are licensed to to act on and intervene on in the name of, certain claims for, for social progress and social betterment. Um, and, you know, the, the techniques of memory that are at work in, in, in Cambodia, I mean, invariably are, are, are quite often rooted in quite limited and Eurocentric assumptions about trauma, for example, um, and, you know, the benefits of sort of, you know, th- therapy and therapeutic thinking um, for for intervening on past violence. And and I don't think they they necessarily tell all the story. One of the main things you're looking at here is this connection between uh, transitional justice and and memory, uh, and uh, there are these assumptions about the health related dimensions of, of memory uh, that apply to individuals, but then you can also apply them to nations, and and they have their own history. And I guess if you if you go back to the idea of Foucault, there are institutions, there are entities that define how we understand memory, uh, that that are at the root of the authority of those those institutions or or, or disciplines. Uh, and uh, and a lot of those ideas about memory that are are time and discipline specific just get incorporated into transitional justice. And become the um, justification for for intervention uh, in, in in places like Cambodia and elsewhere. Um, where do these ideas about memory and and healing? And I thought this was fascinating because yes, so I mean, this is a, it's a fascinating question. There's, I think, you know, quite a lot 
lot going on in terms of you know the the what you would need to sort of um to really furnish a genealogy of the the you know the role of sort of therapeutic idioms i think you know because that's fundamentally i think what this is what this is about um and the way that they they sort of leached almost to become you know just a taken for granted set of shibboleths essentially um that, that really order the, the the most fundamental and basic assumptions about work in in human rights and transitional justice and and you know in that respect you know Foucault's work is important again because you know he wants us to pay attention to to what he would describe as the sort of savoir the grammar you know the the, the, the sort of grammatical knowledge the basic sort of organizing principles of of you know these realms of of social and political action um and you know i, I suppose just a few quick observations would be firstly yes i think it's this is rooted in a very specific western european psychiatric history um and you know what's interesting there is the mobility of those assumptions about memory and exactly as you picked up on rick how they um they start in the first instance as a set of quite you know individualized and individualizing um um, sets of claims about sort of individual capacities to remember and and how the memory the mind and the psyche will work and and they essentially you know became inflated right and applied wholesale to to you know um the body politic of 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 nation states now you know that that has got all sorts of problematic uh, you know consequences and effects in the way that it sort of pathologizes these contexts um you know and it goes back to the point that I was making previously about the sort of the rendering of Cambodia as this as this broken and, and politically sort of dysfunctional space you know um or its depiction at least on those terms um and exactly as you picked up it's it this is connected again to to um foregrounding certain agents and certain you know experts as able to sort of intervene within these spaces and you know uh you know licensed authorities that that can act to make these these experiences better or apparently to make these these experiences better I think one of the points you made is, well, if you want to trace the roots, at least some of the roots of the genocide, it goes back in part to the, the war in Vietnam and there's bombings, uh, uh, that the American bombings uh, of uh, uh, what Viet Cong in Cambodia. They're using Cambodia as a staging ground uh, for, the, for the war in South Vietnam. Uh, and uh, that's a destabilizing factor for, for, for the government uh, in in. in but the point of this is that there's a broader context, right? And one of the one of the points that you make is that uh, if you you have this idea of transitional justice, that uh, based on these therapeutic ideas of memory, that this is a wounded country, it's got this horrific past that it needs to deal with, uh, and all of that is uh, uh, all of that ends up being limited in time and focus, right? You, you have this conflict that really has much broader, uh, broader origins. Uh, it, it involves lots of different groups, uh, that, uh, and, and a history that goes beyond the genocide that don't end up even getting included in the process of transitional justice, that, that the whole focus is very narrow, uh, and, and, and limited. Uh, and that's something I was hoping you could talk about that you have this horrific event and it is possible to limit it in time. What's in 1970, 75 to 1979, but it's not really just that, that there, there's more going on, uh, and there are more people involved. So uh, 
And I think that's one of the things you point out. That's one of the problems with transitional justice is that it's it ends up being very, it makes broad claims, but it ends up being very narrowly focused. That, that, that's that's absolutely right. I think, you know, the, 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 what's what's key here is to bear in mind that the transitional justice, it's is not inevitable. You know, these, these mechanisms don't, don't, you know, pop out of thin air and the way that they are mandated to um, redress these kinds of violent histories would always be shaped by you know not just international you know political pressures but but domestic ones too so you know in cambodia i mean of course we've not um you know whilst you have a handful of senior leaders um who were or would be put on trial at the extraordinary chambers in the courts of cambodia that that transitional justice process in no way was going to look at for example you know the u.s bombing in the years prior to um, prior to the, the the rise of the Khmer Rouge, and, yeah, by some estimates, that that bombing campaign killed upwards of five hundred thousand civilians. Right? Um, you know, it was, it was illegal, even even according to to uh, to US law, right? Um, in, in, as it was sort of executed in 1973, 70, um, a period of nineteen seventy three. Um, you know, sim- similarly, you're not going to have you're not going to have transitional um, you know the sponsorship of the Khmer Rouge by by uh, China, other Western governments, um, and this is a period where they were they were you know continuing to commit quite terrible sort of violence against um, against civilian groups, particularly sort of ethnic minorities, still throughout the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. So you, you're absolutely right. You know, transitional justice, even as it it wants to sort of call attention to some episodes of conflict and atrocity, it's 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 productive of its own. You know, elisions as well. You know, um, it's essentially sort of attenuating any scrutiny of um, of you know crimes and histories that that were perpetrated by by you know um, powerful powerful actors. You know, the US in particular, China as well. Um, no, you know, of course, there's a domestic politics to all of this as well. So you know, within Cambodia, there's there's you know there was the, the reconciliatory you know. Um, politics of the 1980s and 1990s um we really you know hinged upon bringing lower level Khmer Rouge back into the fold you know um so so essentially sort of after the Khmer Rouge were removed from power in 1979 you have a you know a, a very protracted civil war that goes on for 20 years and the government essentially had to buy off lower level Khmer Rouge and the way that they were doing this is essentially by granting de facto amnesties um so throughout the transitional justice process, you know, around the ECCC, but then also, you know, in, in lots of the work that other NGOs have been doing, um, you, you, what's, you know, a real sort of hallmark of it all has been, you know, this this idea that the senior leadership of the Khmer Rouge were to blame, you know, which is ultimately sort of a, a, a sort of crafting and framing of responsibility that's actually quite common in, in um, international criminal law context. You know, the idea that it's senior senior leaders sort of command responsibility. That's where the sort of the focus of redress efforts have got a have got to fall, um, and in Cambodia, you know, this has gone hand in hand with, um, you know, essentially the sort of an articulation of lower level Khmer Rouge quite often as as victims as well of the regime. Um, so quite often you'll have, you know, around the ECCC process, you know, you had a lot of quite explicit reassurance work going on. You know, saying lower level Khmer Rouge had nothing to fear, um, for example, and an emphasis on 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 the fact that lots of lower level Khmer Rouge were victimized as well, right? They 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 lost relatives or um witnessed things or bystanders to things that perhaps they had no or not so much control over, let's say that. Um so so you know that those are 
you know, those are the interesting sort of gaps, I suppose, that, that I would I would highlight in 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 the work that's gone on within Cambodia. You know, and on the international side, there's a lot of impunity, um, and and domestically as well. People would argue, um, or some people would argue that there's there's quite a lot of impunity too, because because you know mid-ranking and lower-level guys who might still live, you know, very um, very immediately around people that suffered under their hands, you know, these these people will not be not be punished. But it's not like the the, the current government of of Cambodia that initiates this whole that invites this process of transitional justice. They're not hiding from this limited focus, limited scope. That's what they, those are the terms and conditions that they established to begin with. And they justify, right, in terms of, uh, of uh, that's the, the best way to bring about uh, reconciliation. That if, if the focus of the, of the justice mechanism is too broad, that uh, they, they argue it's going to be too disruptive. That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, this is a point that... The point that I think um, you know is 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 misrepresented slightly um, in lots of these conversations about the, the the transitional justice process in Cambodia. I mean, you know, you have you have critics of the Cambodian government, and the you know the Cambodian government has got an appalling human rights record. You know, these are not <laughs> these are not the good guys, but but you know the the, the the sort of very limited jurisdiction, personal jurisdiction. You know, is is become a bit of a beating stick. You know. Um, where and a, and a sort of you know a bit of a lightning rod, I suppose, for accusations of sort of corruption and you know domestic impunity. And I think for some critics of the government, you know that that people weren't people would not have been happy with the transitional justice process unless it was visibly breaching the sort of acceptance of the the Cambodian government around that sort of limited jurisdiction. You know, um, which which I, I I just find sort of slightly. Um, slightly baffling you know the 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 consent for this process exactly as you say rick you know in terms of sort of the initial invitation from the cambodian government in 1997 to initiate um a war crimes tribunal process you know was was predicated on on you know only a handful of leaders former Khmer Rouge leaders essentially being being brought into the dock um and that was you know that was clear from from the get-go so so you know the idea that the idea that that sort of limited jurisdiction is the sort of central and key failing of the court, you know, I, I'm, I think, you know, it's wider than Mark. The uh, hypocrisy of the whole process is on the one hand, you have this therapeutic language of you need to intervene uh, because you have this wounded country and you've got to work through this difficult past that they haven't confronted. And, uh, and this is the only way for the country to move on. But in reality, uh, that you have all kinds of uh, political agendas that uh, uh, that are that are driving the process. Uh, uh, countries that don't want to have their histories connected to this in, in, in any way at all, uh, and uh, um, so you wonder, you know, the, the the importance of you have these broad claims that are being made about what this this is going to do for the country, and then you have the reality of of what's what's behind it that you have. It seems to be in, it's inevitably setting every every everyone up for for disappointment. I think that's that's right. You, the, you know, this was also an incredibly expensive process. You know, and it and it took a long time. You know, the, the tribunal started in two thousand and six, and and it it really was driven in part by 
by a sort of a broader set of international uh, tropes around you know um, the urgency and the need for the need for for justice in this in this context um and and you know to to well, this is a maybe slightly sort of crude and clumsy argument but you know to justify the expense you know big claims were made you know um the sort of language that that was mobilized to to justify the tribunal process you know um setting the record straight, you know, moving forward through justice, all of these sorts of slogans. You know, I think it was it probably was always, you know, destined to to inflate expectations and then probably disappoint them. I think what's really, really sort of problematic about about this is that the a lot of the same sort of um organizations and um actors uh who were who were very, very involved in the um the initiation of the process um, and the inflation of those expectations, um, the insistence on the importance of a tribunal process, um, were, were were quite quick to sort of turn on it. You know, they were they were the first to also sort of decry, um, you know, the, the the findings and the outcomes of the tribunal process as sort of you know almost second rate. You know, and this is again it, it tethered to um, arguably this 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 problem around the, the the limited jurisdiction, right? The 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 idea that the Cambodian government were um, were obstructing the tribunal process, and and you know they they did they did do that, um, but they did that on terms that were apparent um, from the get go. So so I suppose my question there is just what what what's the surprise? And you argue that it well if you're going to understand what three hundred plus million dollars, and then you have what what is it three convictions at, at the at the end of all of it, uh, and then you you explain that if you go through these these actual trials and there are only a handful of them what four altogether yeah um that uh the ones that are most successful are the ones that fit into that political agenda uh and uh, they're they're ones that that neatly serve the interests of well especially the 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 government of cambodia and that's that's the first trial and maybe to a certain extent um the two people that can that are still alive that get convicted in the second trial. Um, so, could you explain what 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 makes the 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 initial convictions or especially the first trial a lot easier, and then it becomes much more complicated and there's more resistance at least within Cambodia uh, to when it comes to the the later trials. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so the first trial was was the most um, straightforward for for several reasons. I mean, you know, the, the first of which was just the um, the, the focus of that trial was principally around the the twelve slang s twenty one crime site right which is a, a former extermination center in Phnom Penh um and and the sheer weight of sort of documentary evidence that was that was retrieved from that site um as a sort of evidential base um it it was it was just very very clear um and the 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 gentleman that was overseeing that um that site you know doik um was was also not really a, a you know, a, a political sort of sensitivity for the Cambodian government. You know, he was, he wasn't quite a senior leader and he fell under the, the, um, the jurisdiction as a sort of most responsible person, um, as it was described under the, the, um, the, the ECCC mandate. So, so in that sense, that, that first trial, it, it, it didn't really ruffle any feather, feathers and, and that sort of evidential weight was just so, so, um, so significant, I suppose. Now, the second set of trials, K zero zero two, were were more were more sensitive um, because they concerned the sort of the senior leadership. And in terms of the legal um, 
machinations that were at play around that second trial, um, it, it was more complicated just because you're you're having to sort of draw um, a picture of of sort of command responsibility, I suppose, you know, what what was described uh, or what's called in the, the legal process joint criminal enterprise, where these senior figures um, were giving orders and they were knowingly bringing about situations where, um, you know, where it was within, within um, it was foreseeable that, that violence was either occurring or was being directly, directly ordered. But, you know, pinning down the sort of paper trails and, and the, the, um, the actual sort of evidence base there is, is, is just, by the scale of the crimes, much much harder. Um, so that's why that that took a lot longer. Now it's it's a third set of cases, zero um, zero three, where the the real sort of accusations of political interference sort of pick up, um, and these were directed at a group of sort of not quite senior, more mid ranking Khmer Rouge officials, you know, mid ranking senior Khmer Rouge officials, um, who who the government essentially. Um, opposed the prosecutions of. And I don't think that's because they were particularly sort of, um, you know, on board with the government or particularly, um, you, know, you know, clients of the government, so to speak. Um, but certainly they were, you know, the government, as a point of principle, I think, was was always going to refuse any sort of prosecution that started to impinge upon um, their sense of what the jurisdiction should be should be limited to. And those, those cases were essentially sort of shut down um, on behalf of, um, on behalf of the sort of the Cambodian co-prosecutors and co-investigating judges, who who just would not would not uh, consider sort of pushing forward with those, and this was in the context of a, a tribunal that sort of is brought together by um, international and Cambodian staff. You know, so you know you'd have an international prosecutor, an international um, co-investigating judge, and a Cambodian counterpart for each of those offices. So where where there there are loggerheads. Uh, where those sort of persons are at loggerheads in the tribunal process, things just didn't didn't go forward, um, and this this all fed a broader narrative of you know political interference, political uh, corruption, I, I suppose, um, and and really led to that sort of sense of or the accusation from some international human rights organisations that the tribunal process was a as a sham. But your point too is that these trials are. It's like a stage where you have these struggles over framing this past, uh, struggles over uh, competing memory claims is, the, is, is how you describe it. Uh, and uh, so you've got to try to control the narrative of, of how, this is, how this is remembered. And the accused are often trying to challenge the way uh, that that narrative is framed. Uh, and they can do it, you mentioned, in all kinds of different ways. Uh, uh, by working through the narrative, uh, by just rejecting it uh, outright, uh, by trying to broaden it. Uh, so you mention, and you look at these this, the scripts of the actual cases uh, as as examples of what a, a counter discourses that are that, that are at work challenging the dominant ways of of, of of framing this particular past. So how how does that work? Yeah, so you you see this play out in sort of uneven ways across the the cases that were heard at the tribunal. Um, you know, the, the the first trial against Doik, which was you know it was wrapped up pretty quickly, but and that was partly because you know of, of Doik's admissions of guilt. Essentially, he played along with um, with the. The tribunal script, and he offered apologies. Um, I mean, you know, there, there are there are some some people will still say that the, you know, the apologies were poorly worded or you know maybe not so sincere. But essentially, what you saw in that that trial 
um, was a sort of a strategy of acquiescence, I suppose you would say, um, where 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 Doik was was really acquiescing and playing along to the preferred scripts of the the um, of the prosecution. Um, now, in the, in the second cases where where you know the the ch- charges are brought against the senior senior leaders, it gets more complicated, um, and you know you see, I think, two things that really characterise what had. Um, you know, I suppose that, that that's a sense of contested memory within the courtroom. And the first of which I suppose was, would be denial. Um, and, you know, I use Stan Cohen's work here actually to, to try and think about this. You know, Stan Cohen sort of describes denial in, in sort of three ways. First is that you'll get literal denials where somebody will say something just didn't happen. Um, then you'll get denials by interpretation where certain forms of wording might just tweak and adjust the meaning that is that is attributed to events, and then you've got a sort of an implicatory denial, almost a denial by by justification, and you see that play out in in that second trial, um, also the second sets of trials quite 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 um, quite quite often. Now, a, a final point on this is is I think is quite interesting because it goes back to this this question of sort of hypocrisy that's haunting uh, you know the, the the Cambodian transitional justice process or at least the legal side of it. Um, which is around sort of strategies of, of rupture that the accused uh, actually mobilised. And this is ultimately sort of where um, where those senior leaders, whether it be Q Sampon, more often actually Nguyen Chia, who um, was a very senior Khmer Rouge leader, um, essentially asked the question, who are you to judge? You know, where, where they can point the finger back at the courtroom and say, you know, that you, you're, you're, trying, you're trying the crimes that, that the Khmer Rouge you know, um, committed, but but you know you are not trying. Who are you to judge when you are not trying at the same time? For example, you know the U.S. bombing or what happened afterwards, or uh, you know various different sort of human rights violations that, that either preceded or followed the Khmer Rouge regime. So that sort of sense of questioning the actual the integrity of the jurisdiction, you know, um, questioning the, the 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 integrity of the process. Um, I think it's fascinating, you know, just in terms of the way that it 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 makes. It asks questions of memory and about the supposed universality of these processes. You know that all perpetrators of human rights violations apparently have to be be punished. When you know quite easily, the accused can say in the courtroom, "Well, they're not being." And again, you're just revealing that the hypocrisy or the reality that this, this whole process is supposed to be what, objective and and driven by the facts and and inspired by. Uh, these uh, sciences of, of 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 healing, and uh, but in reality, uh, it's constrained, uh, constrained, narrowly focused, uh, and you have efforts to 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 challenge and to to to, to reveal, um, you know, what narratives are allowed, what aren't, uh, and uh, and and those that aren't often what gets silenced in some cases. I, th- I think you make a point too that that the the process allows for victims to have a voice uh, and even that gets constrained in certain ways. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. So, so one of the, one of the innovations of the Cambodian tribunal process was, was a quite a a central role for victim participation. So, you know, you had um, in the second set set of trials, case 002, the opportunity for some victims to, um, to testify about their experiences um, and you know, on the one hand, this is you know this is a really important sort of development within the the wider landscape of international criminal justice. It's reflective of the increased sort of centrality of tropes about victimhood within transitional justice processes. Um, 
But on the other, you know, we've always got to ask that sort of set of more critical cautionary questions, I think, you know, and, and certainly on the way that those those forms of participation were enabled um, or, or invited, there, there were constraints around what, what could and could not be said, you know. So, I mean, in the first instance, the fact that it's only a small number of victims that are given this platform um, out of a much broader universe of, of experiences, you know, it, it, it is immediately going to limit the kinds of experience and testimony that are, are heard within the courtroom. But then beyond that, the actual sort of stories themselves had to conform to certain scripts. You know, the, these victims had to demonstrate their suffering um, against the sort of the, almost the map of of the um, of the evidence base and the investigation at hand. And they had to do so in certain ways. They had to sort of demonstrate their their suffering in, in particular therapeutic terms, right? Particular therapeutic sort of idioms. Um and that sort of sense of sort of grievance where it has to be articulated on those terms, I think is is also in turn quite quite limited and limiting. Okay. And one of your points was that if you focus on the trials uh, and you think about transitional justice just in terms of this court that's set up, that you miss out on uh, on how much broader the process is. And there, there are all kinds of non-governmental organizations that are supporting of the work of transitional justice. And uh, and and they're 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 part of the way in which this this past is getting framed and understood and uh, constrained. Uh, and you you point out uh, uh, a couple entities in particular, uh, the document documentation center of Cambodia and and uh, uh, the one individual who's a driving force uh, behind that, uh, the transcultural uh, psychosocial organization. What's the role of these? non-governmental organizations in uh, in the work of, of transitional justice and shaping memory um how does that work yeah so i, I think there's um the, you know there's there's two things going on here um you know the, the first of which is is that th- these organizations really pushed and advocated for um the transitional justice process and that process and they had a big bearing on you know the the, the shape and terms the transitional justice in Cambodia, even within the courtroom, sort of ended up looking like you know these groups were very um, influential in supporting and um, and and sort of almost mobilising um, you know vic- victims, collective sort of victims groups to to advocate for and and push for sort of reparations, for example. Um, but you know, the, really, ultimately, what what I'm trying to do with this argument is show show that the, the courtroom itself, you know, is 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 only one quite small space within which, you know, the transitional justice process, I suppose, was playing out in Cambodia, at least. Um, you know, and it's quite telling because, you know, the, the, the tribunal process got, got you know, a, a lot of public attention, I suppose, in, in the media, um, on TV and on radio at certain points. But lots of people didn't necessarily pay, pay you know, a great deal of attention to it, you know, and ultimately sort of, you know, public awareness of the tribunal process remained fairly limited throughout um and you know in that respect you you can look at these sorts of organizations doing doing more sort of continuous work i suppose in terms of sort of public outreach um and public education around the margins you know and they're not marginal but they were you know working on the margins to, to stretch and augment um augment you know the transitional justice process in cambodia um so so there's two organizations that that you um you mentioned there that i talk about in in the book you know the the documentation center of cambodia i mean firstly is you know it's a hugely important organization in terms of advocacy for 
and about memory in Cambodia. DCCAM was set up um, in the early 90s, really as an offshoot of Yale's um, Cambodian Genocide Programme. And, and its initial sort of mandate was really around uh, preserving archival materials um, and trying to sort of, you know, prefigure what was become the... Um, the tribunal process by by essentially collecting collecting evidence, but you know their, their work has expanded beyond that, and that's partly down to the role of um, their executive director Yu Chang, um, who who is who's you know he's a, a very charismatic guy. He's um, he's you know very he, you know this is not this is not a sort of cynical take. He's very good at sort of mobilising and leveraging um, organisational support, for example, for. Um, secure sort of donor funding um he's very good at working with sort of international partners and you know um other academics and researchers and so dc cam have you know really shifted beyond just that initial mandate of doing what sort of collect an, an evidence base i suppose to to you know a much broader suite of um initiatives and, and interventions that are intended to sort of promote memory so for example you know they they were very influential in um in the initiation of a new public school um, history textbook, right, that was introduced in 2007. That's the, the history of democratic Kampuchea. Now, they, they, they do these things working within a, an environment that isn't necessarily always particularly welcoming. And so there's a politics there as well. You know, so DC Cam, you know, in the work they were doing in authoring this, uh, this new textbook, obviously had to follow certain, um, certain sort of parameters in terms of what could and could not be be talked about. And so that question of sort of, Politics and memory is really opposite in in these cases too. This, the same goes for TPO. You know, this is again where you know I, I, I pay attention to this example because I want to show how um, that relationship between memory and politics is 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 messy, but also quite implicit in in the work of some of these organisations. So TPO do a lot of um, psychosocial work where they will go out to the provinces and try and raise awareness about trauma, for example. Um, and, you know, there's been real efforts to sort of try and vernacularise that and express, um, you know, or try to raise awareness about sort of mental health and mental well-being um, in th- in and through idioms that are more um, more immediately sort of accessible to, you know, a Cambodian audience. And even as they're doing this, you know, I, I would suggest there's still a sort of politics at work there. And, and that's partly because, you know, when you frame these memories of these experiences, again, through these therapeutic um, and trauma vocabularies and and idioms you displace other ways of thinking about the past you know um and and you know you you mobilize forms of of memory claim that that have their own effects right when you talk about sort of groups of people as traumatized you pathologize them they tend to be sort of quite um disempowered in their relationship to their their experiences and their survivorship um and and you know one of the effects of trauma you know, a, a trauma framing in that respect, as well as to sort of wish away questions of sort of retributive justice. Um, you know, so so questions of sort of um, you know of, of retribution and and revenge potentially sort of get get um, get located as as you know pathologies themselves or unhealthy um, dispositions in regard to to memory, and that that fits that wider politics of national reconciliation that um, that I was talking about previously, where where lower level Khmer Rouge are um, are sort of depicted as these these co-victims, I suppose, of the of the regime. So that there's a sort of set of alignments and affinities there between the sort of uh, the politics of memory and the framing of these these sorts of interventions. So I think the the, and the common theme is whether you're looking at this uh, this international court, 
or you're looking at these NGOs, there's a simplification and a flattening of that past, uh, how it's framed, how it's understood. Uh, uh, and, and then if you look at the actual memory sites, the, the, especially the most prominent ones, and you briefly mentioned this S21 Tuol Slang Museum of Genocide Crimes and the Killing Field Memorial, uh, that you see the same, and even Wat Demi, that you, you see the same kind of flattening and simplification uh, of that past that it's fit into uh, like a, a neat uh, black and white uh, structure. Uh, and and it's it supports the way, especially the way the government wants wants to uh, shape that narrative. Um, how does how does memory work in a flattening way at these different sites, prominent sites of, of memory? Yeah, so so you know the, the the there's some interesting work that goes on around you know representation at at those you know principal memorial sites, and it's you know it's changed a lot. And you know S twenty one the museum staff in particular have done a lot of good work in in sort of complicating and adding a bit more sort of nuance, I suppose, to that um, to that representational work and the sort of his, histories that are communicated at those those spaces um but you know they, they, they can never quite sort of escape escape you know, the, the history of that site itself you know which which is exactly as you say is is quite flattening and it is quite binary in its its depiction of Khmer Rouge violence again it's you know this this you know, insistence that only the sort of Khmer Rouge leadership were to blame and you know a broad sort of ellipsis and a broad sort of um absence really of of um, explanatory content around the role of lower level, uh, lower level Khmer Rouge. Um, you know that 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 has changed slightly. Where you know, as I said previously, the you know, lower level Khmer Rouge are increasingly sort of argued to be co-victims of the regime. Um, but but ultimately, it's you know within these these parameters that that does tend towards sort of more you know Manichaean um, oppositions between the sort of the evil of the leadership and the the and the, the suffering of the the Cambodian people more broadly. I mean, these the spaces, you know, I, I worked, I was quite keen during you know, my fieldwork for the book um, to, to get away from um, Phnom Penh and get away from those more um, more high-profile commemorative sites. And, you know, that was why I, I did a little bit of work up in um, in Siem Reap. Now, there's, 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 you know, provincial memorials across the country, um, but the Siem Reap, what's my memorial, I think was quite, quite interesting and quite illuminating in what it what it told us because you know it you know it 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 reveals i think some of the the pragmatisms i think that um you know are at work in other cambodian uh, relationships to these histories that tend not to be recognized you know within you know the transitional justice process i suppose you know and you know the what's my site in particular is, is is quite novel because it picks up on Lots of the iconography and the imagery takes them sort of wholesale from S twenty one, and then displays displays them as if it's sort of in situ authentic to that space, and it's not, you know. So you know, in the representational work that's going on at that particular site, you know, they have to borrow from that broader sort of landscape of national um, imagery to sort of authenticate and um, and present, you know, the work that's going on in that sort of local local space. Um, and within these local spaces, you know, that, that you've got other other sort of challenges of representation. So there's still sort of display of human remains. Um, and lots of Cambodian audiences find that quite problematic because it's a sort of violation of, of um, Buddhist funerary practice, you know, where an inauspicious death should um, should oblige a really urgent cremation. And so the idea of having human remains still on display actually sort of is quite upsetting for 
for some uh, Cambodian audiences. And, and lots of the kids think that there are ghosts still at the site, right? Because you know, where there's human remains, there will be spirits. So, you know, the sort of assumed relationships that people have to these these memorial spaces or ostensibly memorial spaces, you know, that don't really necessarily work in the way that we um, or Western audiences or human rights audiences more broadly might might assume and, and expect. So, you know, you, you have to ask other questions about how these sites are, are made meaningful. And and ultimately, you know, in spaces like, you know, Wat Mai, um, you know, the, the, the space serves other purposes. You know, it, it, it has become um, a site that attracts tourists, um, you know, there's there's busloads of um, people that visit the Angkor famous Angkor temples that have to stop off, or they tend to stop off and do a quick tour of that space on their way up to the temples, and you know they will put donations in a box, and those donations are, are used to maintain a pagoda, and the pagoda you know has its own sort of um, functions in terms of the, the support and the role that it uh, um, it provides for for the local community, whether that be in terms of sort of food or uh, accommodation or schooling. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, that, that it's it's just a different set of set of um, relationships that that, that you know t- might not be visible, I suppose, to to the way that we would you know assume a memorial tethers or anchors a a set of memories about about past violence. And I, you know, my, in my argument in the book is that that demonstrates a sort of a pragmatism, I think, um, that that we we should pay more attention to. So you have an effort on the one hand to. Uh use these sites to, to flatten the past, to present a, a certain a certain memory of what happened. But in the end, you can't really control how people relate to them. And they're going to understand them in their own way, right? Whether it's monks who are okay with tourists coming because they, the revenue is important or people who just use it as, as, a, as a stopping off point or recreational space. Uh, so... I think that's that that was that's one of the uh, the, the contrasts right, that you were trying to trying to point out. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, ultimately, you know, the the, the argument if there was a you know one key argument that to come through in the book that I I would want to sort of stress to readers it's it's that sense of sort of um, variability in the relationships that people have to these experiences of past violence and and you know that there's a a problem at work within transitional justice intervention research and practice that assumes people. People will have quite uniform relationships to these these experiences, and actually, it's okay to be you know to be quite ambivalent or to be pragmatic or to be you know even opportunist, right? In in the way that these these histories are, are made meaningful, and that really comes through in the relationship that people you know adopted or were adopting um, in relation to those those commemorative sites. But it's really I, I had an episode. Uh on the genocide in Rwanda and I interviewed Tim Longman and there are just so many parallels here uh, that uh, you, you frame that, uh, that past, you really want to accentuate the horror so you can cast the government in a savior role. Uh, and, and that you've got to, you've got to uh, cast it in terms of a black and white past. Uh, and, and you erase a lot of the complexity in the process. So in Rwanda, you go to these, these uh, mass uh, grave site, mass memorials, and you have who knows whose bodies are there. <laughs> You're basically collecting bodies from all sides and just burying their, them, and, and, and everybody gets labeled as victims of the genocide. And to me, it seems like the very same thing is happening at places like S21 or or uh, Watheme. I know I'm mispronouncing that, but uh, 
uh, where who knows uh, uh, whose skulls are there. Uh, uh, those those pictures that become emblematic of the genocide, uh, they're all victims of the regime. But when you look more closely, really, they, they could have been participants uh, um, that uh, that that this flattening of the past uh, uh, doesn't allow for the true complexity of, uh, you know, the, the victims uh, one day could have been the perpetrators uh, another day. That, that's absolutely right. You know, there's, there's a very interesting history about the sort of the politics of anonymity and the politics of flattening, you know, in, in all of that sort of representational work, you know, so um, in, you know, I suppose what you describe as a sort of an, you know, an international iconography of the Cambodian genocide, those, those portrait photographs, those black, black and white photographs, you know, that, that were um, taken as people were interred at um, the S21 site, you know, um, that, that, you know, that, 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 exactly as you say quite often images of um of you know women and children you know, victims of the regime but they quite often also include members of the Khmer Rouge lower level Khmer Rouge too um and in that that period after the removal of the 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 regime from 1979 onwards you know lots of people you know went to go and look for missing relatives in those images um and and the, the state throughout that period was was always quite resistant to sort of naming those those faces and that is partly because you know there wasn't um, there was a resistance, I suppose, to recognising that that the lo- lower level Khmer Rouge then um, were were you know, made up a significant number of, of of those of those of those people. And just the and just the use of bodies too. There's this hypocrisy. On the one hand, you're trying to be sensitive to this horrific past and help people to move on, and yet there's this complete lack of of sensitivity uh, about putting these bodies on display, these bones on display. And the exact same thing happens in Rwanda that's completely at odds with uh, traditional practices and values and customs. Uh, but uh, it's, it's the political imperatives that, o- that uh, override everything else. That's absolutely right. So, so throughout the 1980s, you know, there, there were there were commemorative activities around sites of mass graves, um, and and you know, in, in that period after the Khmer Rouge were removed from power, all of those graves were were exhumed, and and the the remains were chemically treated, and they were displayed in boxes, um, and l- later in the 1980s, sometimes moved into stupas, um, you know, in 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 a way to communicate a message that could be could be not in any sense sort of equivocal about the past it was a sort of a brutalism you know in 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 and one dimensionality in 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 this central claim that was you know legitimating the cambodian state in the 1980s that you know, w- w- you know essentially they were the saviors right they they prevented and ended a genocide and what what more proof do you need than to see these masses of of you know uh, bones and you know bone fragments skulls you know human remains on public display in these in these boxes across the country, um, you know. So so that was that was a key sort of part of the the state's self legitimization strategy throughout throughout that period in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. Um, and people still ask questions about why the bones you know have not to this day have not been um, appropriately cremated. Um, and you know, that 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 question, I think, you know, as and when it is it returned to, I think, will be quite an interesting. Um, point of point of potential resolution around around uh, you know, how this this case is remembered and thought about, but it seems to be almost like a mark international marketing ploy that, that's pretty successful because when you you think about the uh, 
the genocide in Cambodia, those black and white photos and that S-21 camp, that does come to represent everything that happened. Right? So it, it does become a powerful visual. It, it does. And, and it's also, you know, um, a quite a key feature in the tourist economy, right? In, in Phnom Penh um, and, you know, in, in other places, you know, visiting S-21 and visiting the Chuang Ek killing fields, you know, is, is, is part of the itinerary. If you spend time in Phnom Penh, you know, you'll be, you know, held by various different tuk-tuk drivers throughout the day. And they will almost always ask you if you want to go and visit, you know, these two sites in particular. Um, and so, you know, that, that sort of question of sort of ownership and, and, um, and, and, you know, the role and function of these, these spaces, I think is, is still quite, quite vexed. Um, there was a controversy, a, um, a, a decade or so ago where, where the, the ticket concession, to Chuang Ek, the, the killing field site in Phnom Penh was actually sold to, uh, I believe it was a Japanese-Korean concession, you know, um, to a company who would essentially sort of act as a steward of, of this space and, you know, promise to reinvest some money in the redevelopment of a um, of a sort of visitor centre. But, you know, the, the idea of sort of, you know, privatising or sort of commercialising or selling off a space that's, you know, that's ostensibly meant to be sort of dignifying of these these histories and these experiences, you know, it, it, it raises sort of interesting questions, I suppose, about about ownership and about um, about sovereignty and about um, about the sort of ethics of memory that that are at work around those those spaces. So you can you know you can juxtapose that, I suppose, on the one hand with with that that sort of sense of pragmatism, I suppose, that um, that I was outlining previously about what to my. Um, I think they're sort of slightly different different stories, I suppose. On the one hand, about how a community is renegotiated its relationship to, to to those those sorts of memorial site on its own terms and then on the other hand you know how how you know we've probably got to be slightly cautious about um about the wholesale sort of you know commercialization and privatization of uh, of of these kinds of spaces um elsewhere in Phnom Penh and the sorts of ethics yeah and politics that come, attend to that yeah I think another example of this that you offer is this commemorative event the May 20th Day of Remembrance. Uh, and, and so how, what the performance that uh, it, that takes place or performances that take place across the country, where they take place, uh, um, uh, it's a type of unusual reenactment, uh, you point out, uh, a new invented tradition. How, how is this another example of, uh, of uh, this tension between um, um, memory uh, and uh, uh, and kind of an uncomfortable manipulation of these spaces. Mm, yeah. So, so the May the 20th commemoration is really interesting. It's, it's changed quite a lot since it was first introduced in the 1980s. I mean, back in those initial sort of instantiations, it was, you know, gr- groups, community groups were essentially sort of invited by local authorities to, 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 um, to, to go and testify their, 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 and perform their anger um towards the Khmer Rouge at the at the burial sites at the memorial um sites um at the sites of sites of mass graves and you know it it, it was an invented tradition it was it was top down it was very much directed by the state but but then i think at the same time you know when you, you Rachel Hughes's work is very interesting to read on this and she's written about it sort of more more extensively than than i have but you know one of the points she stresses that is that this this did still have some some resonance, I suppose, for the, the the kinds of popular and public sentiment that were at, at play in the 1980s. So, even though it was sort of very much an invented tradition, um, 
you know, it still sort of chimed through a, a little bit with with the way that that um, way that people were were feeling in that period in the in the nineteen eighties, um, and it was you know it was a public acknowledgement of 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 the harms that had been suffered, um, you know. So in that sense, it still tallied, I suppose, or, or you know, clicked with the way people um, in that at that time were remembering what the Khmer Rouge had perpetrated against them. Now, now I contrast that slightly with, with you know, what's happened more recently. So, you know, in, in Phnom Penh at the more, the, you know, these two very high-profile spaces at uh, S21, but then at the Killing Fields as well, you've, you've had much more um, more carefully curated, let's say, um, you know, performative and commemorative events, you know, to the extent that in recent years they'd, they'd even included sort of, you know, almost like a battlefield reenactment of... of moments within the genocide which which is slightly odd because we'd normally sort of um you know understand a sort of a battlefield reenactment um as something that you know would happen around a conflict right a war rather than rather than something that you could possibly do in relation to to a genocide um and so you know that was that was you know at, at the at the chuang x site where you know young students from the, the royal university of Phnom Penh and the arts um you know, were had to dress up essentially in black and then reenact, um, you know, mass killings essentially on on a lawn in front of in front of the stupa and in front of all of these these human remains. And then you know the the the, the narrative arc of the ceremony is is um, it culminates with the sort of you know the, the Vietnamese and the and the government sort of intervention in 1979, where where the you know the state is um, the state is portrayed as this this liberating and um, a savior force that, that that ends that that genocidal violence but but you know the point i'm making is that it's it's an odd sort of aesthetic it's an odd sort of kitsch the idea that you could even um could even think to to um demonstrate or to display or, or or reenact that kind of violence as if it uh as if it has any sort of any value as i suppose art you know um in the context of um in the context of you know, a site where where you know human remains are are still on on display. It sort of it grates. It sits perhaps um, slightly uneasily, I suppose, with 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 um, with the way that we would assume you know people engage with those sorts of spaces and sites. So, if you look at the um, the limitations of this international court on uh, these uh, these performances, these sites of memory, uh, uh, the work of 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 these NGOs. Uh, all trying to to deal with this particular horrific past. I mean, is there is there any kind of corrective? Is, I mean, is there any right way of doing this, uh, uh, or is this just uh, an impossible mission? So, I, I, I think part of the part of the problem is is you know a set of inflated expectations about what these processes can deliver that that is then necessarily always going to be disappointed. Um, now, now I, I say that. You know, going back to to you know the point I made previously, which which was that we you had um, a big push amongst you know transitional justice organisations, human rights organisations, to initiate the tribunal process, and to do that, you know, big promises were made. Um, you know, the, the 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 scope, the scale, the kind of justice that was promised, you know, was, was probably invariably always never going to be delivered on that basis. Now I, I say that, and and I think. Ultimately, you know, I want to recognise at the same time that the tribunal, the tribunal engaged communities in in quite uneven ways. You know, some people really have bought into this process. You know, they've really taken a lot from it and they value, 
the verdicts and the findings. Other people have been hugely disappointed and other people just, just haven't paid any attention to it. So, so it, it's always where this, where this sort of ends up as either a success or a failure is always going to be, I think, quite, um, quite messy. Now, what I would point to, I suppose, as successes or, or you know, um, victories within all of this is, is probably around some of that work that has gone on um, and been led by civil society groups. And it's not innocent. There's lots of, you know, um, there's lots of sort of interesting politics and problems that attend to that, that, that practice too. But they've made great strides in pushing and augmenting, you know, the, the shape of what transitional justice looks like now. So, for example, you know, there's a big push among those groups now to engage in questions around intergenerational dialogue. Um, and by that, what, what we're getting at is, um, is, you know, in Cambodia, you know, this is, this is violence that happened in the 1970s. Lots of, you know, um, lots of elderly Cambodians that experienced this firsthand, you know, um, have children or grandchildren who don't necessarily believe them when they talk about this, you know, so, so that sort of absence or, um, questions around the the authenticity of these these sorts of histories the veracity of these sorts of histories that's something that you know these these non-governmental organizations are really trying to pick up on now you know really trying to engage young people in in conversations and debates about um about the value of learning learning about this past and the value of um value of sort of remembering the experiences of their 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 relatives and you know i I think in in that in that respect that's you know that's work that's going on, not just in in the public school curriculum, but in other educational spaces and in lots of other um, more creative fields. You know, in in um, film, in you know arts arts work, arts led advocacy, and you know it's it's addressing these questions with more nuance than I think you know the the sort of the the, the courtroom could perhaps allow for. Pete Manning, thank you so much for for taking time to talk to me today. I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much, Rick. Pete Manning is Senior Lecturer in Sociology in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the University of Bath. I've been talking with him today about his book, Transitional Justice and Memory in Cambodia, Beyond the Extraordinary Chambers. After traveling the globe for the past two years, I'll return home next month for the first of several episodes on the United States. I'll start by talking with University of Oklahoma professor Carlos K. Hill about his book, Beyond the Rope, the impact of lynching on black memory and culture. Carlos argues that representations of lynched black bodies were never static. It was the framing of black bodies in threatening and demeaning ways that fueled the lynching epidemic that claimed thousands of African-American lives beginning in the late 19th century. But it was also the efforts of African-American cultural and political actors to offer their own more humanized and even heroic representations of lynched black bodies that were instrumental in challenging this American reign of terror. If you find value in the work featured in Realms of Memory, you can support us by telling a friend or posting a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Rick Dadarian. Thanks for listening and see you soon.